You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in Heaven, we've come here today. We're here at Camp Meeting. We want to soak in want to soak in the rightness and righteousness of Jesus, Lord. We want to uh, receive from your word the truth that you've put there for us. We want to understand better. And of, of course, Lord, we want in our lives that this understanding will be uh, turned over into action that helps your kingdom, Lord. So bless today, we pray. Send your Holy Spirit, send your holy angels. Give us help on what we might think is an easy topic, uh, and it truly should be an easy topic, and yet there is a lot of fog in the way. Help us to understand better, Lord. And so we thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so welcome again. We, uh, we've had the three lighter days, and now we're going to have the two heavier days. So we're going to talk today about justification. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to start with a silly question. A silly question. How many of you have heard of Martin Luther? I already know the answer. How many of you have how many of you have heard of Philip Melanchthon, Luther's friend, associate, co co-author, co-theologian, co-professor? Uh, and how many of you have heard of this guy? This is Martin Chemnitz. And not a hand is up. Well, we're going to come back to Martin in just a minute. I'll tell you why he's, his picture's there. But first, from the great controversy, Ellen White has a statement that has been uh, understood a certain way. I'm going to just read it to you. It's just a one-liner here. Great Controversy 253. The great doctrine of justification by faith, so clearly taught by Luther, had been almost wholly lost sight of, and the Romish principle of trusting to good works for salvation had taken its place. And you can get that in its context and read it out there. There's so many chapters in Great Controversy on Martin Luther. Some people have tried to make this statement that we just uh, put on the screen here. Some have tried to make this statement support the idea that justification is merely forensic. In other words, it's only counted. You're counted righteous, but you never be, God never makes you righteous. Uh, it's just counted. Uh, some have even suggested that Ellen White agreed with that idea, and they've used this statement to get you there. Okay, so again, looking at what Ellen White wrote, the great doctrine of justification by faith. She says it was so, t so clearly taught by Luther it had been almost wholly lost sight of, and of course in its place came trusting in your works for salvation. So this, this is something we all agree on, we all agree on this, but some Adventists who are trying to change our understanding of the sanctuary have, have uh, and trying to change our, our understanding of the message that heaven has given us, some of them have, cons some who are some of our uh, main historians, are among those who are pushing this idea, uh, pushing the church in the wrong direction. So what I want to suggest to you that something very interesting happened uh, along the way. 
What Luther taught on justification by faith in the 1520s is not what Lutheranism taught on justification by faith by the 1570s. In basically one... 50 years later. Yeah, in one generation, uh, several key bits were changed about what Luther taught and didn't teach about justification, which makes this statement from Ellen White on the screen quite interesting because Ellen White tells us Luther clearly taught it, but she said that it had been replaced by something else, and today people are telling us that it, what this means when we say Luther clearly taught it is this, so we're going to study the Bible and see if it's that or if it might be a little bit different than that. In fact, uh, this fellow whose picture you saw a moment ago, Martin Chemnitz, he is called by Lutherans the second Martin. The second Martin. And the reason why he's called, at least by some Lutherans, the second Martin is because he was one of the principal authors of the uh, Formula of Concord and the Book of Concord in the 1577 and 15, right in that space there. And again, that was what Lutheranism became. Before you even get to the 1600s, Lutheranism is pretty much locked in on the certain viewpoints on what justification is and isn't which have continued uh, very much to this day. So if we just assume that we know what Luther taught, we might be in trouble. So we want to again look at, at the Bible. So we're going to come back to Chemnitz later in the presentation. And uh, But what I want to do now is I hope you have your Bible with you because I want you to open to Romans chapter 4 and I want to have some Bible study. In fact, you'll see that almost every time we meet, I want to start with the Bible study and uh, plow into it because, you know, at the end of the day, you really don't care what I think. You don't really care what the theologians think. You want to know what does God say, and so we always go back to the Word. So, Romans chapter 4, and let's have a Bible study about justification. Then we'll come eventually to your handout, the timeline there, and some of the quotes on the opposite side of your handout. If you look at, just, at Romans chapter 4, it is the considered to be the main teaching in the Bible on justification. What is justification? Uh, it breaks down into three main sections, verses 1 to 8, which more or less teach that, well, not more or less, which teach that Abraham was justified by faith. Uh, was he justified by faith or by works? Then you have verses 9 to 12, which tells us that the same principle applies to all believers. Then you have the last half of Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to the end of chapter 4, which tells us that God's promise was to Abraham, we are his descendants, because that applies to us only because of, of Jesus, and so we receive the promise of justification by faith uh, at, because we are considered to be sons of Abraham. That's how we get it. You don't get it because you are any other thing. It's because you're a son or a daughter of Abraham. So, let's go over there and look at Romans 4 and verse 1. Romans 4 and verse 1 has this, and we have some different translations, but here's what it says in the New King James Version, for example. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? So I want you to notice right away that uh, we are starting with a question. It's not, uh, the question is, is, is a very important question at the beginning. What did Abraham discover about justification? It's not what did he discover about the flesh, it's what did, what, 
It's not what did Abraham discover about justification, but right at the beginning, rather, it's what Abraham discovered about the flesh. If he was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, even if it's just a little thing. And if there's even just a little bit of our justification that we can claim, uh, then we're in trouble because that is going to uh, pollute the gospel. However tiny our contribution might be, if it's personally meritorious, that would undermine the gospel. If, if you're saved 99.5% by God and a half percent by yourself, then you're going to have, uh, you've, you've just messed up the gospel pretty thoroughly. So, uh, that's an important piece. Now, in contrast to our being saved by our own works, Paul points readers to two places here at the beginning, Genesis 15, and then we're going to look at a reference to David, but he points us to Genesis 15 and Abram. Abram doesn't have an heir. Abram asks that God make Eliezer of Damascus his heir. God tells Abram, step outside, I want you to see something. Abram looks up, he sees the stars. God says, your descendants will be, uh, will be like the stars of heaven. It's not going to be Eliezer, your descendants. And here's Abraham, his wife has passed through menopause. He's a very old character and uh, yet he is going to have children. And so that's sort of the crazy thing that God does, the crazy dilemma. But God tells him, this is the way it's going to be. Does Abraham know how it's going to be that way? No. Does he know the science? Does he know the miracle? How is it going to work? How is God going to do this? And Abraham doesn't know that, but I'll tell you what, when you look at verse 3, although Abraham does not understand exactly how this can be, what does he do? He trusts God that it will be. And so Romans 4 verse 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And if you read the Genesis narrative starting in 15 of Genesis and, and carrying on, uh, you will see that um, God enters into this covenant with Abraham and so on. And, and that's, uh, that's what Paul is sending us back there. Now, although we've only started on Romans chapter 4, We've already come to, really, uh, a critical question, a very critical question. What does this word impute mean? Now, you have different, perhaps, translations here. We have impute, reckon, count, account, uh, different things there. Credited, some translations say. What does that mean? Nearly all teachers... Uh, will say that God declared Abraham to be righteous while they propose that in actual fact he was not righteous. Their theory is that God declared an unrighteous man to be righteous. This is what most of us have heard. This is what many of us have taught. Now my question to you, and, and <laughs> does that interpretation match the story that Paul points us to in Genesis 15? Does that really match the story? The Genesis narrative doesn't focus on what Abraham is missing because the Genesis story focuses actually on what Abraham has. What does Abraham have? We read it in Genesis uh, 15.6 or, or Romans 4.3. Abraham believed God and God declared him, accounted him, imputed him, whatever it was. He, he considered him to be righteous. And so we want to know what is that that's actually happening. The Bible tells us that Abraham had something. He had faith. And so he was computed, he was counted as being righteous. 
God did something to him, reckoned, credited, imputed, or something him as righteous. Now, when we say we are, we are credited, we say, let's say we are credited, we need to buy an automobile. What are we doing? And we're going to buy part of it on credit. We're, we are being trusted for something we don't have. We don't have enough money to buy that. And so uh, they give you a credit score, right? The bank gives you a credit score. You're going to spend a lot of money you don't have. How does it work? We borrow the money. We don't have the money. We have something in place of the money, so we buy the use of a quantity of money now by promising to pay all that money back plus interest, additional money. So we are able to purchase things on credit. Why? Because, you know, we have this credit score. Now, the credit score is a number. It's a prediction of your ability to pay back the credited amount along with added interest. So depending on your credit score, you either have a higher risk or a lower risk. If you have a higher risk, if the people who are lending you the money are looking at you and saying, yeah, well, you should be able to pay it back, but it might be hard, it might be difficult, you might not be able to pay it back as easily, then you're a higher risk and you're going to pay more interest. If you're a lower risk, they're pretty sure they're going to get their money back then you might do better in your credit. The trouble is that what we're doing is we're, we're thinking of everything in terms of what we don't have. But when we go to Genesis, what's being looked at is what Abraham had. What did he have? It's what Abraham does have that's highlighted. Although his aged human body was unable to father children, on a totally different basis, what basis was that? The basis of his trust in God Abraham was faithful. That is to say, in God's calculation, Abraham is, Abraham actually is righteous. Because that's what God declares him to be. You know, back in John 7, 24, Jesus pled, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And you know, we're supposed to evaluate things not as they appear to our limited vision, but we're supposed to go by the facts as much as we can. We need to try to understand the true relation of one thing to another. So, uh, I don't want to plow too much into this, this Greek word, but this is the word that's undercounted, imputed, reckoned, credited. It's the word logizomai. Logizomai. You don't need to write it down. You probably don't need to remember it. We get the word logic in English from it. Something is logical what? When the pieces fit together and, and you're able to say 2 plus 2 equals how much? Four. Now, of course, there's people today who are saying 2 plus 2 equals 5, but we're not going to go there. <laughs> That's another question. That's critical race theory, and uh, it doesn't equal 5. But anyway, you and I look at it, and we say 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's a logical statement. Logic, and from that we get this verb, logike, logizomai. It's a deponent verb in Greek, and uh, it's this based on this same root, this concept of valid forms of reasoning. Romans 4, I want you to know, is about how things truly stand. It's about how things really are. It's not about fake things. It's not about pretend things. It's not about God looking at Abraham and saying, what a sorry mess. Uh, I'm going to wink at this, and we're going to get him in the kingdom through the back door. It's not about that. What it's about is what does Abraham actually have? Is Abraham on God's team or not? And so we're going to find out the answer. We've been told, though, something different from this. We've been told that, that this is about God 
saying that Abraham was something that he wasn't. But what we in fact see is that uh, God always deals with things as they actually are. He deals with the actual facts as they actually are. And so uh, what we have is there is allegedly a deficit. God's going to count Abraham righteous. He's not righteous. But God's going to make up the difference and just let him into the kingdom anyway. That's what we're more or less taught. God is going to make up the deficit and Abraham will be in the kingdom. Now that would be true if that were only our innate goodness that was being discussed. If it was like how good you are, you apart from Jesus, how are you going to get in the kingdom? You're not going to get in the kingdom. Your righteousness will not get you there. You do have a deficit if we're looking at your own personal righteousness because you have sinned, you've fallen short of God's glory, you continue to fall short of God's glory, you... Uh, you're not able to get in there with your own righteousness, with your own power. Abraham was not able to father children by his own humanity. It just could go on and on and it wasn't going to happen. What I'm going to suggest to you here is, uh, well, let's, let's carry on with our study and then we'll come, come on along to the rest. So if we look at verses 1 and 2, this question of wage or gift. Did God give Abraham salvation because of Abraham's works? We all know the answer, don't we? God did not give Abraham salvation because of Abraham's works. If that were the case, he'd be boasting about something. And if you work, you receive wages. So if you agree with somebody for some work, let's say you, you agree with your employer to work for eight hours at $15 an hour. You do eight hours of work. As agreed, you receive $120. Why do you get $120? Because that's what's owed you. That was the agreement. That's the deal. That's what's due to you. Abraham is not saved on the basis of any labor he does or any labor that he ever did. Abraham is saved as a gift given from God. Abraham was actively trusting in. He was actually believing in God. God saw that this was true. He saw that Abraham possessed faith and he recognized that fact. And God has determined that no one will be in the kingdom on the basis of their own works. So he saves according to our faith, not according to our works. And several times in the Gospels, what does Jesus people, tell people? He tells them flat out, you're saved, you've been healed according to your faith. According to your faith, be it unto you. Not according to my faith, me, Jesus, according to you, your faith. Where, does, where do they get their faith? Well, we get our faith from God, but again, the act of expelling sin we found earlier in the week is the, is the act of the soul itself. So Jesus says many times, your faith has saved you and things like that. So I have a question. Did Jesus misunderstand justification? And of course, we all know, of course, they couldn't possibly be. But it's interesting when you get, get out into the uh, world of theology, you have theologians will say, and one of them was Desmond Ford, uh, said that the clearest understanding we have of righteousness by faith is in Romans ch verse chapters 3, 4, and 5. And... Uh, Somebody even said, I think that actually it was him, but I could be off by who it was, so I won't claim that. But somebody said, somebody said that uh, Paul understood justification by faith better than Jesus did. That's almost blasphemous, isn't it? But the trouble is, we always go to Romans 3, 4, and 5, and that's fine. We're, we're in Romans 4 today, aren't we? But uh, what we want to do is, is we believe that the whole Scripture was inspired by the same Holy Spirit. It all is consonant with itself. It all matches itself. Um, Paul and Jesus did not have two different viewpoints on what justification was or any other thing. 
uh, these are are uh, going to agree unless we get into a problem and then we have to start running everything through a certain interpretive plan and then we wind up with this and this is what we have in as our theologians sometimes take words and they work on it so again I'm not going to spend a lot of energy with the grammars in Greek because you know you can't really check me on it but I will point out two things very quickly here on the grammars in Greek uh, there was a uh, Japanese fellow Takamitsu Muraoka in 2009 he he wrote this uh, lex he, he, he published this Greek English lexicon of the Septuagint what is the Septuagint the, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament it existed from about 250 BC out to about 50 BC right in there is when it was finished those 200 years or so the good the interesting thing about the Septuagint is that we can look at the Hebrew words and we can look at how in the very time of Jesus almost how those words were translated into what Greek words so we can understand what the Greek meant by looking at the Hebrew that helps us supplements our understanding so in this lexicon when you come to this question of this word logizma what do you find you find that um, matza well you find muraoka do you find that he is saying it means to count reckon impute you find that you don't find that I don't remember if I put it in here yeah here's nine nine meanings for this word that is in his lexicon you don't have to remember these but not one of these uh, is the same as what we have normally been taught I didn't put the notes in here but the this is the ultimate lexicon for the New Testament it's called BDAG uh, Bauer uh, it's the main one BDAG they just call it BDAG uh, you go to its definition and I've got it written here on the page none of those definitions are really quite the same uh, what these guys are telling us is that the number one definition I had here to calculate to determine the quantity of that is the best understanding of what this word means so again we don't want to spend a lot of time and we won't spend any more really on Legizuma except to say this that uh, this word is nowhere said to mean the things that it's translated in any of our translations hardly uh, that should give us a signal that you know this is this is an interesting place that we're in does it mean to count something as though it's not or does it to uh, or does it mean to calculate things as it really is so the first example we had was Abraham and then we have the second example that Paul gives us in Romans 4 as we continue to study Romans 4 and if you look at Romans 4 verses 7 and 8 uh, Paul is going to quote from David and David is at Psalm 32 the first couple of verses of Psalm 32 now here's what we have in verse 7 okay 7 and 8 of Romans blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute that's legizima that's our crazy word will not impute sin count reckon impute whatever that that meaning actually is now when you go back to uh, and we can flip back there back to Psalm 32 let's go back there and look at where Paul's quoting from Psalm 32 and we're looking at the first two verses now you know that back in those days that the parchment and all this stuff was uh, expensive there were no spaces between the letters there's no chapter headings really 
Uh, everything back there, we don't get we don't get numbering of verses till Stephen's New Testament in 1556. So for all these years, how do you refer to something that's somewhere else in the Bible? You don't have verses. And the way they would do it was they would refer by quoting a segment. They were thinking of this whole stretch, and they quoted that piece, and everybody who heard it said, oh yeah, we know that part. We know that part of the of the Torah. We know that part. So what we have here is let's look and see what it actually says because there's a little bit more here in 32, 1 to 2. Psalm 32, verses 1 to 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, all of that isn't in Romans 4, but I believe it's all implied there. Remember, in Hebrew writing you have what's called parallelism. Uh, they didn't have italics, they didn't have underlining, they didn't have any of those uh, tools that we have today. But to emphasize something, the Hebrews, and this is widely known, everybody studies the Hebrew knows about this, and just you can just see it yourself when you look at the Hebrew. Many times when you read something in the Old Testament, what do you find? Something is said, and then it is said again, just slightly different, maybe kind of poetically. That's called parallelism. Say thought one, and then thought two is almost the same, just a little bit different. And what you find here is, so for example, again, 32 verse 1 of the Psalms, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. That's the parallel thought, part 1. Part 2, the same parallel thought, whose sin is covered. His transgression is forgiven, his sin is covered. That's the same thought twice, right? Then you get to part uh, verse 2. We have part 1 and part 2 again, the parallels. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And what's the parallel? The person in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, if you're counting something as uh, we're going to count you as what you're not, how can you have a parallel with the part that says, and in whose spirit is no deceit? Do you count somebody as not having deceit? They either have it or they don't, right? And so the parallel thought in Psalm 32, verse 2, is God does not calculate sin to you, iniquity, and at the same time, the person who he's not calculating is not referring or believing, not, uh, not holding that person as having sin. That person, their spirit actually has no deceit in it. And so, by looking at these Hebrew parallelisms and looking at the very one that Paul quoted back there in Romans chapter 4, what do we find? We find that, that uh, the parallel shows us that there's no deceit, there's no deception, there's no twistedness in the person who's been forgiven. He is, he is changed. He's a transformed person. There's no deceit left in him. He can go back and go into deceit again. You can stop lying, and then a year later you can start lying, or a week later, or a day later. But when you stop lying and you continue to stop, that's, uh, that's a change. And so... Um, Paul is not writing here about a new, merely forensic forgiveness. When God forgives sin, that sin is completely removed. And sometimes we have this idea of uh, God, God forgives our sin, but he's still kind of holding on to it there, and he's waiting to load it back onto us. Actually, the Greek word for forgiving is aphesis. You don't need to remember that. But it really means literally to lift. Like if this was a box uh, with 50 pounds in it, and I, well, I'm not sure what's in there. i to be careful here. I'll lose it. But if, if I picked it up and lifted it away and threw it out that door, then it would be gone. The sin to, to be forgiven is to have that burden removed. 
Well, a lot of times we think of that burden being removed in, in terms of uh, I'm no longer counted guilty, but wink, wink, we all know we're guilty. But that's not God's way. When God re forgives sin, God removes sin. We all know it, 1 John 1, verse 9, right? Blessed is the person whose sin is forgiven, whose, what will he do? If we are faithful and just, he will forgive us and he will uh, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he doesn't forgive you but leave the unrighteousness. He forgives you and he removes the unrighteousness. They go together. And I say to you right here, in verse 2, Psalm 32, verse 2, the person who the Lord doesn't count iniquity to, that person has no deceit in them. God has removed it. So when God takes care, or gets rid of sin, he gets rid of it completely. And so God does not call something the way it's not. He always presents it in terms of how it really is. If you watch how Paul develops his argumentation in Romans chapters 1 to 3, what do you see? He berates fellow Hebrews for their hypocrisy because they knew what was right to do and they knew what was wrong to do and they did the wrong thing anyway. So he's unhappy with them. If there's no possibility of even doing right, how can Jew or Gentile be condemned? If Paul is saying, well, you know, we're all going to sin anyway, that's not what he, that's not what he does. God comes with his Holy Spirit and he's, he comes through Paul and every other Bible writer and he tells us, go and sin no more. And he doesn't mean you're still guilty. He means I forgive when I forgive you, I completely forgive you, I take away your sin. He blots out our sin. So God offers to transform us, to change us, as he changed Abraham, so that in our lives we're going to seek God's promised victory and it's going to be a, what? According to our Jesus-powered faith. When God forgives you, there's no residue of sin. When God forgives you, he transforms you. Forgiveness becomes very good news. But under, um, under the popular theology, it has become something else. So anyway, we can study Romans 4, uh, and let's, I'm afraid of getting behind the clock. So I'm going to zoom on ahead, and if we have time, we maybe we can go back and look at that. But... Um, if you follow out the whole chapter of Romans chapter 4, I think you'll agree. Uh, if look, if you look at it that way, I just encourage you to look at it that way and realize that uh, chapter 4 is beautiful and special because what's going on in Romans chapter 4 is we are having our sins not imputed to us anymore. What does that really mean? It means that we are considered as we actually are. God is calculating us as being actually righteous. Uh, not righteous in our own righteousness, don't make that mistake, but that the righteousness of Christ, Christ becomes our righteousness. He transforms us. It's because of His mercy. It's because of His goodness that we are changed. So let me go ahead and go back to Chemnitz. Um, I'm going to skip that. We can come back to it if we have time. But I want to go back to the second Martin. Uh, and again, up here, we're in a territory that's uh, lots of Lutherans and Catholics, and so this should be especially pertinent to us. Uh, and this has become the evangelical view. So on the handout that you have, let's look at that. Uh, I've got one, another one for you right here. Who else needs a handout? Everybody got one? All right, so uh, first of all, I've got a timeline for you. 
Let's look at the side that has the timeline on it. You'll notice that Luther was born in 1483. Melanchthon was born in 1497. In 1516, Erasmus does his Greek New Testament. Uh, there's a word there. He's been the, the Vulgate has been the main source of theology for Christianity for uh, for a long, long, long time. And uh, let's give out some more handouts here. Can we pass those back so that everybody's got one? Here's a couple more if they're needed. All right, so we're looking at the uh, the timeline here now. Luther's born, Melanchthon's born. Erasmus in 1516 translates the Greek New Testament. The Vulgate was written in Latin. It was translated into, uh, from Latin. That was the main source of theology. And uh, Erasmus does something different that hasn't been done before. When he comes to this word that we've just been talking about uh, this afternoon, when he comes there, he translates the Latin. It had been translated reputatum. Now it's translated imputatum. And so we get this idea of imputation. Uh, Luther puts his theses in 1517 on the church door. The Reformation begins. Uh, the next year, he calls Melanchthon to be a professor at Wittenberg, so he's real close to Melanchthon. Melanchthon's his buddy. If you read uh, Great Controversy or other, any other historical source, you'll find that uh, Luther and Melanchthon worked together very closely. They were very important to each other. Luther's got sort of an investment in Melanchthon, though. Uh, then we have 1521. Luther he has to be convinced by Scripture or he will not retract. He's excommunicated the same year. And the next year, Martin Chemnitz is born, our second Martin. So now we come to 1530, and that's where we need to pause for a minute. Now in 1530, what's going on? Luther had been hidden away. Now he's kind of back out, but he's still an outlaw. And so the emperor calls for the princes to get together, and they're going to write out their faith and try to work some of this business out. And so the princes get together, and they're supposed to go to this city where they're going to the city of Augsburg. And so on the way, Luther can go part of the way, but he can't go all the way. And so Melanchthon and Luther especially work out this uh, thing that's called the Augsburg Confession. But Luther can't go the rest of the way. But what's going on? What happens there in 1530 is something very pivotal. Uh, Melanchthon writes in there, and he uses this core term that, that was the same one that Erasmus used in 1516 in his translation. And so now uh, Melanchthon uses it in terms of, of being counted something that you're not. It's like if you did something and you truly were guilty, but you got off on a technicality, but you're, the judge looked at the lawyer, and the lawyer looked at the judge, and they all looked at the guilty person, and he sort of gave kind of a nervous smile. They all knew he was guilty, but they had to let him go from a technicality. But that's not the way it works. When we're sin, we are guilty. Um, when God forgives us, forgives us, he takes away the guilt completely. So it, what happens here is that Luther goes almost all the way to Augsburg. He has to stop. And Melanchthon goes the rest of the way. He's still kind of tweaking the document. And this document becomes the giant, the very important thing. It becomes the Augsburg Confession. By the way, if you're studying um, your book, The Great Controversy, and reading about the Reformation, 
you'll notice that the first 10 or 13 years of the Reformation, Ellen White's going to say awesome things. But after that, we don't hear very much about the Reformation. Most of the, the, the intense, powerful um, things that we all think of happened in those first dozen or so years. The Augsburg Confession comes kind of after that time. So then you have the Apology for the Augsburg Confession, which is kind of a 1531 next year. It's sort of an explanation of the explanation. Council of Trent comes up after that. Now here's what you, another thing you might not have known, that in the closing of the 1520s, Martin Luther's health was very poor. He had Meniere's disease. He was dizzy all the time. He, uh, he had cataract in his eye. He had, he had all kinds of health issues, and his health just kept deteriorating, and Luther dies, Martin Luther dies in 1546. Who's the heir apparent? Who's the one that begins to really shape uh, Lutheran theology? It's Melanchthon. Melanchthon lives on for several years, and so this becomes the, the thing. Uh, meanwhile, Chemnitz is growing up, and I guess to finish out our little um, historical outline, uh, eventually Luther dies, Eventually, Melanchthon dies, and what happens? Uh, what happens? You know what? I see I've got everything off by a year in the last part of my slide, but your, 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 um, your handout, I think, is correct. Yes, your handout should be correct. Yeah, Melanchthon dies in 1560, and in 1577, the Formula of Concord is written. This is a change in the theology of the Catholic Church, of the Lutheran Church. And the main author is Martin Chemnitz, the second Martin. This goes into the Book of Concord in 1580, and uh, finally Chemnitz dies. But uh, what you have here is that in one generation, what Luther, well, we haven't proven this part, so let's come now to what Luther did teach. We go back to the beginning here where we had that quote about Luther. Here's the quote again. The great doctrine of justification by faith, so clearly taught by Luther, have been almost wholly lost sight of, and then this Romish principle of trusting in good works for salvation had taken its place. Well, what was the what happened? What's is is the formula of Concord different from what Luther taught a generation before that? And the answer is, in many places, it's roughly the same. And the answer is that in some places, some very critical places, it's very different, very different from what Luther taught and believed. So then we go back to our Ellen White statement, which she says Luther clearly taught the principle of the doctrine of justification by faith. So what is it? Is, the, is it the view of justification by faith that we have been told that Luther taught, or is it something different? So what I want to do is share a couple of quotations with you now, and, uh, and I have this book. Alistair McGrath, you might have heard of this person. This is the book of all the books on planet Earth. This is the book. It's not the Bible. It's just a scholarly source. This is the, the person who's gone through the doctrine of justification, its whole history, from uh, all the way through, and uh, how many pages is it? 400 and some pages. But he lays out the history, follows all the theological changes. I'm going to give you a couple of quotations from him. Uh, not... He's not our authority, but on this topic, he is probably the world's foremost, one of the world's foremost authority on the, the Reformation. He's not a Catholic. He's the Church of England, uh, which has its own issues. But there were some changes. And so, let me see here. Did I put those on the handout or not? I think I did. So on your handout near the bottom of that front page, you have the Formula of Concord 
not only mark this as McGrath, after his analysis there, the formula of Concord not only marked the ending of an important series of controversies in the Lutheran Church immediately after Luther's death, it also marked the victory and consolidation of the critique of Luther from within Lutheranism itself. Luther's concept of, and what's his most important concept? Justification. Luther's concept of, his most important one, justification, his concept of the presence of Christ within the believer, his double predestination, as Luther taught it, and his doctrine of servum arbitrium, which we won't talk about, all of these were what? McGrath says, and he's right, they were rejected or radically modified by the ones that followed him. Whereas, and so, this is really a monumental thing to say. And some Lutherans don't even know about this, but a lot of Lutherans do. Luther taught justification by faith. And I believe that he taught it, based on his writings that I've read, uh, Luther taught it the right way. I think that's true. And for Luther, when you were justified, you were also made right with God. Which sounds a lot like Ellen White's writings, if you come down here sometime later, 500 years later. But in the, Catholic, in the Lutheran Church today, justification is completely understood to mean counted forensic righteousness. You're right, you're declared to be righteous, but you're not really. And Luther also taught, uh, similustus et peccator, you are at the same time a sinner and at the same time righteous. And there's a sense in which that is true. But uh, again, this is really Melanchthon's tweaking. Luther was sick and didn't really uh, work on this at the latter portion of his years. And this became the thing within one generation. What Luther taught on justification is, and what I believe the Bible teaches on justification, within one generation we shifted, and so now you are just to justify means to count right, to impute, to count right, when biblically it appears that it means actually to that you are actually what God says you are. And so you have a giant change on that basis. Uh, here's another quote from McGrath. Luther consistently employed images and categories of personal relationship to describe the union of the believer in Christ. Melanchthon, in contrast, Melanchthon increasingly borrowed images and categories from the sphere of Roman law. That's where he got um, imputatum. And then finally we have this one, uh, bottom of the page, front page. Luther does not make the distinction between justification and sanctification associated with later Protestantism. So mostly we've heard, we, and we, talk, we tend to talk about it that way too. Justification is in this box. Sanctification is in this box. Justification means this, 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 and this. Sanctification means this, this, and this. And um, McGrath says, Luther does not make this, this distinction between justification and sanctification. By the way, let's talk about sanctification for a minute. Sanctification means literally to make holy. Now, we hear that it means to be set apart for God, and it, that is a meaning, that is a, a valid meaning. But all through the Bible, when you look at that, you should also see it in terms of being made holy. To sanctify is to make something holy. Something is sanctified by God's presence. What does that mean? That means it's, His presence is there. That means it's a holy place. Take off your shoes. The ground that you're standing on is holy ground. It's sanctified ground, right? So, now what's interesting is, and I didn't put it on here, but Ellen White has a statement. It's in Faith and Works, page 14, if I remember correctly. 
Uh, she talks about justification and sanctification. She says many times uh, that people bring in their own definitions of what justification and sanctification is. She says we've got to be careful about putting a lot more of distinctions between those two things than the Bible does. And she warns us. And so uh, she seems to have the same area of concern that we're taking justification and sanctification, we're separating them too far. Now you might say also, well, what about, um, I've got all these Ellen White statements where she talks about to impute or impart. And many times, you know, there's different kinds of use of a word. You can use it uh, with a technical sense. We can use it in a looser sense. And sometimes Ellen White will use impute in a way that we would say impart if we were using it in the technical sense. So you've got to look at each, each statement in its context to make sure we're interpreting it right but what we find some Seventh-day Adventist theologians and historians have done and are doing is they take some of these statements and it sounds about right, it sounds like you would expect, but boy, you better read it in its context and you'll probably do a lot better if, you, if you're careful with that and don't just accept it um, as you, you might think that it, that it actually, you might have been taught that it actually is. So uh, let's go to the back page here of your handout. These are some quotations from E.J. Wagner. Yes. Yes, so the question is, the uh, justification could mean that in a moment in time in your life, you've accepted Jesus, and he's accepted you, and you're forgiven. And But you're not all that you're going to be. You haven't finished growing as a Christian. You might have just started as a Christian, but you've accepted. And... Right. Sanctification goes on your whole life. The making of holy. The question is then about uh, sanctification. Uh, and the statement was that sanctification means it's something that lasts, we, we are engaged in for a lifetime. That is true also. Uh, now what's true also is that a blade of grass is, is perfect at every stage of its growth, unless it stops growing. So with a person who's just come to Jesus, all of us had a time when we just came to Jesus. And we didn't know hardly anything. And we probably still don't know hardly, the smartest of us still know hardly anything. But uh, we started off and we knew just a little bit. And, but if we were totally surrendered to God at that point, what were we? We were justified. We were counted right. And I say that based on our Bible study we had in the first part of our talk today, from Romans chapter 4, we were also as right as could be. We were right... God considered us to be as we actually were, not as a fake, not a fake thing. God wasn't looking ahead and saying, well, so this person's at 1%, I'll just count them 100%. In fact, because we were small, because we were brand new, because we were 100% surrendered to him, we were not only counted right, but we were right in our heart. We were completely right. Now, along the way, different tests come, different experiences. You come up against things and you might balk and not always be in harmony with the Lord, but then you come along and the Lord is successful, you are persuaded, you surrender all to Him again, and you, you're now your bigger blade of grass, and so on. You keep growing as a Christian. So what we're suggesting is that from, from the Bible, uh, from the actual words in the Bible and its actual usage in context, that God actually transforms us he not only 
forgives us for our sin, but he blots out the sin. He actually transforms us. He doesn't just count us holy when we're not actually holy. He makes us in the same way at time that he, he counts us holy, he makes us holy. And so at any point along the way of your development, you're in this status, this perfect relationship with God. You are holy unless you uh, go crazy and, and leave Jesus behind. So imputed and imparted, we often separate those pieces. But in fact, in the Bible, when you're forgiven, you are cleansed, you are transformed, you are changed. It's not that you are God and everybody just winks at it and says, he's getting there. You are there. And then you continue to walk with Jesus, and the further you walk with him, hopefully the closer you are. But at that stage of your growth, you're, you're that close to him, and then further on, more close. And so it's a continuing walk of being made holy and walking with God. So now on the back side of your handout, um, I've got a few quotations here. And what's interesting about this to me is that uh, when I read these things years ago, I read these and I, I also was reading the other statements we see sometimes are, are different historians in the church and didn't seem like they really completely matched. How do you get from one thing to another? And then supposedly Luther taught this this way and so there's sort of a gap. But what we've looked at today from history and from actually from the Bible, from Romans 4 and Psalm 32 and Genesis 15, we'll begin to see here how this does fit together and how Luther was right and Ellen White was right. And uh, there's been a lot of interpretation that has happened, which has been very confusing to us. Let's look at some of the things that E.J. Wagner, uh, A.T. Jones, and Ellen White have said. So... Uh, let's go to uh, the second one on the page because the clock's going to catch me again every time we catch it. Uh, so here's the quotation from, uh, and if you're familiar with these, these were key people in a, a, a fantastic movement of righteousness by faith that happened at the turn of the century, coming up towards the turn of the century. A.J. Wagner writes this, This accounting of faith for righteousness was not an empty form to Abraham, nor is it to us. Remember that the accounting is done by God, who cannot lie, yet who calls things that are not as though they were, by the power by which he makes the dead live. Abraham actually possessed righteousness. Faith works. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. So that's an interesting statement. Another one below it, to declare righteousness, E.J. Wagner said, is to speak righteousness, God speaks righteousness to man, and then he is righteous. The method is the same as in the creation in the beginning. He spake and it was. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus and good works. He quotes you Ephesians 2, verse 10. Um, the next one. The justice of declaring a sinner to be righteous lies in the fact that he what? He is actually made righteous. Whatever God declares to be so is so, and then he is made righteous by the life of God given him in Christ. And you can go on and read some more. Uh, let's read A.T. Jones, next, uh, next one down. Therefore, being justified by faith, he's having a conversation with the people he's preaching to. What do you say? And they say, well, amen. Therefore, being made righteous, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And I know it, don't you? We have peace with God. He says so, then it is so. Even though it were not so, then it is so. 
Even though it were not so, it is so after he calls those things that be, not as though they were. We cannot understand it, but we can know it. I know it, and that's all that I care to do, and so on. So here's some samples, and there's a lot more than these. I've just kind of threw a few to you there, uh, where E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones are saying that when God declares you to be righteous, you really are righteous. But again, remember what we said, you are not righteous in your own righteousness. It is God's power that transforms you. It is his righteousness that is upon you. You are righteous in Christ. Christ and you are united together. And this is one thing that Luther taught. When you come to Jesus, you and he are united together. And this has sort of fallen away to this separation between imputed and imparted and uh, sanctified is separate, and nobody can ever be truly completely sanctified. Uh, this is the teaching that is out there. But let's look at this last one here on the page, um, Desire of Ages, page 347. You probably all have that one on your shelf. And so let's look at that one. This is an incident. You'll remember the incident. The wandering crowd that pressed close about Jesus realized no accession of vital power. But when the suffering woman put forth her hand to touch him, believing that she would be made whole. She felt the healing virtue. Same way, it is the same way, so in spiritual things, to talk of religion in a casual way, to pray without soul hunger and living faith avails nothing. A nominal faith in Christ, which accepts him merely as the Savior of the world, can never bring healing to the soul. The faith that is unto salvation is not a mere intellectual assent to the truth. He who waits for entire knowledge before he will exercise faith cannot receive blessing from God. It is not enough to believe about Christ. We must believe in him. And here, here it is. The only faith that will benefit us is that which embraces him as a personal Savior. What does she mean? That which embraces him as a personal Savior, which appropriates his merits to ourselves. Many hold faith as an opinion. Saving faith is, definition, is a transaction by which those who receive Christ join themselves in covenant relation with God. Genuine faith is life. A living faith means what? So here's the bottom line. An increase of vigor, a confiding trust, by which the soul, which soul? You, you and me, by which you and I become conquering power. And again, we said that the power comes from God, the decision source is me. The power source is God. When I choose to sin, I am guilty. I am held accountable for that because it was my choice. And when I choose to receive God's gift of forgiveness, I also, God lets me on that. That was my choice. His power made it possible. All I did was choose it. But God makes the soul who wants to be, he makes that soul a conquering power. Vigor, an increase of vigor, a confiding trust by which the soul becomes a conquering power. So again, these are, the, and there's many more kind of statements, but these are, I think, telling us that when God forgives you, God transforms you. And maybe that seems super complicated, but it seems to me that it's super simple. When God forgives me, he transforms me. Does that mean I can't choose to do the wrong thing? Of course it doesn't mean that. I can go back and go in the wrong direction. But looking at this, in one generation, the Lutheran Church changed from what Luther taught to something very different on this key point. In just one generation, that's all it took.
And so consequently, God wasn't able to use the Lutherans to finish his Reformation. Um, and we've had some maybe some attempted changes in our theology that have happened also. So there's a warning for us in there. I saw your hand back here, sister. Yes. But uh, if it, so, how can that not change you? And unfortunately, I think the answer is if you're taught it differently. If you're taught that you're forgiven, but hey, we're all just going to keep on sinning. You can't really overcome. We all know that nobody can really overcome. Then you're not you're not ever going there. Then you're not expecting that quick relation with Jesus. Uh, and so that that's how it can be, but it's not how it should be. Uh, do I see another hand? Kent, did you have your hand? And we have we have made the error that uh, Ellen White warned us about in Faith and Works, page fourteen. Sometimes we too strongly differentiate between justification and sanctification, or we think of impute only as counting righteous. When many times Ellen White words uses the word impute to talk about actually being righteous. And in fact, if we follow the biblical, we talked about legizomai, we're not worried about that word, but that's the word that's used all over the place. It's used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. And when we, use, when we actually, what it actually means is to literally count something the way it is. God looks at, God looked at Abraham. He said, you know, he doesn't understand how I'm going to do this, but he believes me. And he looked at that and he computed all the pieces together and in God's infinite wisdom he said, Abraham is righteous. And that's how it is to be for all of us. Yes, Tom. I don't think Ellen White made the statement that we go down as a dry center and come up as a wet center. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. No, and I, I need I need to conclude because of the time, but uh, but I want to say I want to remind us that the devil loves it when we take God's gift and say that instead of instead of being you know this big, it's this big, and that's enough. Just you just just be forgiven and keep on sinning, and that's enough. And, but that's what's been taught throughout the uh, Christian world, and some Adventists even sort of wouldn't want to admit it, but some of us kind of teach something like that. If we're going to receive the fullness of, God, of the gift that Jesus has for us, we want to receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. We want to have his righteousness counted to us, certainly, but more than counted, it really means to be transformed and imparted to us. It's not, again, finally again, it's not our righteousness. We're not saved by our righteousness. It's a gift from Jesus to me, a gift from Jesus to you, and by that gift, we are transformed. This is justification by faith. I think it's justification by faith and verity. I think Luther had it, but within one generation, the Lutherans themselves backtracked, and the devil would love it if we would backtrack and go, go crazy on it too. Uh, let me conclude with prayer because of the clock. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercies to us. Thank you for the truth of righteousness by faith. Uh, Lord, we noticed that the Lutherans wanted to improve on Luther, but we believe, sadly, uh, perhaps they didn't mean to in quite that way, but they made a bad mistake. Help us, Lord, not to improve on Adventism and make a similar kind of mistake. Help us, Lord, to go back to the Bible, back to the Bible, and receive all of the blessing and gift you have for us, Lord. When we're forgiven, help us to know that we are new creations.
through Jesus and only through Jesus. This we thank you for as we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.